Hi, my name's Alyssa. And my name's Melissa. Welcome back to the Deliverability Defined Podcast. Each week, we'll be diving deep into a topic and giving you practical advice to improve your email deliverability. In other words, we'll help you reach the inbox of your subscribers and stay out of their spam folders, leading to more success in your email marketing. Deliverability can be complex, but we're here to define it. Hello, Melissa. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. We normally record on Wednesdays, but it's Friday and it feels nice. Excited about the weekend. Um, You know, we're still in a pandemic, so usually my weekends are just like doing things around the house, maybe going for a walk, getting a coffee. That feels so exciting, but still great. What about you? I'm good. I'm, uh, it's really sunny here today in Washington, which is, you know, you never want to take those days for granted. So I went for a very long walk by the water this morning and it's just like shining through my window. So it feels nice to have like full on sun, but yeah, I feel the same way. Like I don't really have any plans on the weekends ever, but sometimes like getting takeout or (laughs) getting a coffee is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. Still look forward to the weekend. Yes. Oh my goodness. I just, I think I use it as a bad excuse where I'm like during the week, since I know I'm not leaving the house, I'm like, oh, I'll just do all the house chores on the weekend, mm-hmm. which is probably bad. So that's what my weekends are, but oh, well, I'm not complaining. So today's episode, I think is going to be really good. Uh, we're getting back into some more deliverability kind of related topics. And we're going to talk about the 10 common email mistakes that you and I are seeing most often. Of course, there are probably hundreds of mistakes Mm -hmm. someone can make an email, but these are the ones that tend to just come up all the time, whether it's with customers that we're working with at ConvertKit or it's, you know, things we're seeing in our own inbox. I know you and I both have a couple examples that we'll um, bring up today. Yeah, I I was just thinking about emails and it's annoying because I see mistake, like I will see an, an email in my inbox all the time and be like, oh, that's, that's terrible. And then when I was putting together some of my notes for this episode, I was struggling to find those examples again. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know I see them all the time. And of course, like the day that I'm trying to put my notes together, I cannot figure out what those things were that I recently saw. So anyways, I tried to pull some, but they happen all the time. Yeah, that's okay. You're seeing this stuff all day, every day. So um, yeah, we don't, always need explicit examples, but um, I'm sure that some will come to mind. I know as we were making this list, I was having flashbacks of conversations I've had and customers I've seen. So I figured it would be good to just like briefly just describe some of the those elements about a good email because um, then we can dive into all the bad stuff because there's tons. But I think it's pretty easy to, you know, keep some of those like good elements in your email without Maybe some of the other technical stuff we'll talk about that are mistakes. At least these things you can pretty much easily control. So the first one would be an enticing subject line. I think, you know, subject lines obviously depend a lot on your audience and, you know, what your goal is. But I think probably my biggest pet peeve is like a misleading subject line. So (laughs) I think we can all agree that just explaining maybe not giving away the, the contents of the email, but something that grabs a reader's attention and something that pretty much describes what to expect when they open the email. Like that's, keep the subject line relatively, you know, short and sweet, but explain what 
the reader is going to see. Yes. I love that. There's such an art to the subject line and you explained it so perfectly where it's like, you don't want to be misleading or gimmicky, but you also don't want to give away the whole email because then no one's going to click on it. So there is that fine line where your subject line should describe kind of what someone's going to see in their email. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be re your order. And then there was no order. And that was just (laughs) a lie to get them to open. But it can be like, these are the five mistakes I've made in email marketing, for example, Mm -hmm. kind of like our episode today. And then hopefully the email would describe those five mistakes, but it's sort of like, it's describing what's going to happen. It's not saying here's the exact mistake I made. Right. Exactly. Love that. The second uh, thing to keep in mind is that your email should be concise and to the point and can have some nice design elements too. But the big takeaway is that it needs to be what's right for your audience and your brand. So really the way an email looks, the way it's laid out is going to be really unique from sender to sender. So make sure you know your audience and you know yourself and you're sending the content that's going to serve you and your audience the best, whether that's a plain text email that looks like you wrote it to a friend um, and maybe it's a little lengthy or it's a quick email with pretty looking pictures and take someone straight to your blog, but is short. Couldn't have said it better. Concise. So the next element to, you know, keep in mind, a good element would be to have a clear call to action. I think, you know, we can go into the mistakes part later, but this is just like, for me, like I've said a million times, I love to shop. So I like someone to point me exactly where I need to go if there's something I want to buy. And I don't like it to be confusing and I don't like clicking on an image and then having it take me to something else uh, that has nothing to do with what I thought I was going to go see. And also, I think when people do not have clear call to actions, they can really see their engagement kind of plummet. So um, just have a clear place for people to click and either buy what you're selling or you know, peruse what you have to offer. Yep. I love that so much. And if you're one of those senders that's like, well, right now I'm not really, you know, sending people somewhere. I just want to build that relationship and sort of, you know, write to my audience. A great call to action is to ask them to reply to you. And I think we've seen a lot of ConvertKit customers do that well. I know one of our ConvertKit employees, Corey Miller, is starting an email list about his music. And I signed up and he's doing that so nicely. He's taking me along and all the other subscribers along in his songwriting journey. And he's not really, you know, sending us anywhere yet, but it's more of like, you know, what are the things that put you in a creative rut or how do you, you know, get the inspiration you need? And it's helping build that relationship right off the bat. So asking people to reply is a great call to action if you are having a hard time thinking of one. Yeah, that's a great example. So um, our last item we want to bring up about what makes a good email is targeted segmentation so that subscribers are getting emails related to their interests and who they are. So this is always a great one. It doesn't necessarily always apply to every single person, but let's take another music example. If someone's going on tour and they want to send an email um, about a show in Arizona, I don't know, random example, they probably shouldn't email their entire list about that one show. They should probably segment based on location, zip code, whatever they have on their subscribers. So just an example, if you, you know, 
you wouldn't want to receive an email that just has nothing to do with you. It's not related to you in any way. And that's a quick way to get your subscribers to become unengaged and hurt your deliverability. Yeah, exactly. So keep those in mind for just elements that make up a good email. Like I said, those are relatively easy things that you can control and think about. Some of the common mistakes might be things that aren't as obvious, but at least those things are, you know, elements that you have a lot more control over that are a pretty easy, like direct way to make an impact on having a good email. Yes. Love it. And now we can jump into those email mistakes that a lot of people fall into without knowing it. We do have 10 of them. So we'll only talk about each one for a couple minutes so that we're not here forever, um, taking up all your time. But if you want more information on any of these mistakes or how to fix them better, and we weren't able to go into the detail you wanted, feel free to reach out to us, um, convertkit.com slash deliverability. There's a form there and we always respond. So hit us up. Hey. All righty. Number one common email mistake. So the friendly from putting an email address in the friendly from instead of an actual name is a huge mistake. I think there are a lot of mistakes around the friendly from, but what we're meaning when we say friendly from is the sender name um, that's displayed whenever you send an email. We see a lot of people accidentally put their email address in that field instead of, for example, Alyssa Doolin, um, they would put their email address. So that's a quick way for your email to just not look great in the inbox and kind of look a little spammy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I've been getting a lot of spam actually um, in my Gmail account. And a lot of times it's just a, like a from email address with no name. And then there's a subject line and then there's no content. Um, and those just always freak me out and I don't open them and I just automatically like send them to junk. So I could easily see like if someone did that and didn't mean to, it would be easy for me to not open it. Yeah, that's such a good point. It looks bad to both humans like you, Melissa. And also it looks bad to spam filters because what it looks like you're doing is you're putting an email address in that text field that's not the real sending address. So for example, a spammer sending from spammer at spammer.com might want to put support at netflix.com in that sender name field to trick people when their actual email address sending, yeah, it's like something super spammy. So um, be sure that you put text in there, not an email address. And another thing to add on, I don't want to make this too long of a mistake, but make sure the sender name you choose is recognizable. For example, Mm -hmm. if people signed up to your email list as, you know, knowing your company, let's say you own a consulting company and everyone who signs up goes to your website and it's emailconsulting.com or whatever. If you send an email from Melissa Lambert, uh, then a lot of people are going to be like, who in the world is Melissa Lambert? I don't know what this is. I'm going to mark it as spam. But if you're a creator and everyone knows you by your name and they sign up after seeing your Twitter account and they see Melissa Lambert everywhere, and then you send them an email from email consulting, it's going to be the same thing. They're going to say, who's email consulting? I don't know what this is. Mark a spam. So um, be sure you know what your audience recognizes you as and use that as your sender name. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, Okay, number two is using too many emojis. I feel like this is kind of a polarizing topic. And I think we actually have an episode from last season where we kind of talk about it. Anyways, so... I hate emojis, totally honest, can't stand them. I think they look cheesy. And this just totally my opinion, like to each their own. Some people love emojis. I truly feel like if I were to go through every single email in my inbox, 
the ones with emojis are typically more spammy. That's just based on, you know, I look at email subject lines all the time. I, I, Alyssa and I talk about email 24-7. I feel like I pay attention to those kinds of things, maybe more than, you know, someone who's not in deliverability. I just think that the ones that have lots of emojis are usually like very salesy, a little bit pushy. If you look in your spam folder or your promotions folder, sometimes those contain emails with a lot of emojis as well. It's just, I don't know. Again, very polarizing topic, but I just feel like they're unnecessary 80% of the time. No, I actually totally agree. And I think if someone were to look at our demographics on a piece of paper, they would probably be like, oh yeah, that, you know, millennial, female, whatever, like they will love an emoji in the subject line when I actually have the same reaction. It feels like almost like they're trying too hard. The sender is and Uh are kind of desperate for me to open. And I do feel like it feels a little more promotion-y. So I'm with you. And I think um, there is actually a study, we can link it in the show notes, that studied emojis in the subject line and found that it did perform worse um, whenever there was an emoji in the subject line. So be sure to keep that in mind. If your audience loves emojis, honestly, I could see maybe like even my mom like loving that, (laughs) Um, then that's great and feel free to use it. But know your audience. You can do an A-B test on subject lines, see which one works better for you. And use that to make an informed decision. Right. And I think, you know, moral of the story for pretty much everything we talk about (laughs) is like, just like, if you're going to use an emoji, have it applicable to kind of what you're talking about. It can also just like be really distracting and take away from the actual like subject line. Uh, I think that's actually included in the study that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So anyways, yeah. Cool. Um, So this next one is one we run into a lot. And I think a lot of people do not uh, know about. So make sure you're listening to this one. So let's say you have a link to something. You want to put it in your email. If you just type out that link in your message as like a full text, full link URL, Mm -hmm. there's a good chance that that's going to be seen as spammy if you're using an ESP who has link tracking enabled. To break this down a little bit more, let's say you're using ConvertKit to send email and you have a Facebook group that you want to link people to in your message. And your Facebook URL is, you know, facebook.com slash XYZ. So you go create an email, you just paste that link in your email, facebook.com slash XYZ, and you hit send. What mailbox providers are seeing is they see that you typed out that link, but actually whenever they go click on that link, it takes them to convertkit dot, you know, tracking.com, for example. And because ConvertKit has to, and all ESPs pretty much, have to have that link tracking enabled in order for us to tell you who clicked the link um, so that you can use that information Mm -hmm. and you can see it right there in your account. So what a mailbox provider is seeing is, well, this person is saying they're taking you to link A, but actually it's going to a totally different link. That looks suspicious. Um, Again, it's something a lot of spammers will do to trick people. So obviously in this scenario, the sender didn't mean to do anything wrong. They just wanted people to go to their Facebook group. Mm -hmm. So what you should do instead is just type text, like click here to go to my Facebook group and add Mm -hmm. a link to that text instead of writing out the full URL um, or adding it to a button, for example, that says Facebook group and then putting a link on that button. And then you won't have that issue. It also usually looks better. So (laughs) you kind of kill two birds with one stone. It just works better. Yes. Good point. 
The next one, so number four, is sending too many emails in a short period of time. Um, I don't think everyone means to do this. And uh, a lot of times this kind of goes back to like that segmentation that we talked about earlier in the good email elements. I have definitely seen this before. People didn't realize that their segment was getting sent like four emails a day. And not only is that going to create some burnout for your subscribers, but it's also going to make email box providers suspicious of you as a sender. Like that's just not really normal behavior from like good sender point of view. So it's, you know, just all in all, make sure your segmentation is set up properly. And if you are in kind of a line of work where you are, maybe for example, I see this with like webinars sometimes, like if you're sending like reminder emails, just Keep in mind, like if people want to be there, normally they'll put it on their calendar or they, you know, it's great to send a reminder sometimes, but I don't think you need to send four reminders for a webinar you have like three times a week because that's a lot of emails. And I think it was, I forget you guys were talking at a, it was MailCon, which is like an email convention basically. And it was online this year, obviously, but I forget who brought it up in the panel. I have been thinking about this so much. And this kind of goes back to the subject line element we talked about with, you know, good elements. And it was not telling someone what the email is like in the subject line. That was an example that was brought up. And it was like, if you're sending a webinar reminder and the subject line is webinar reminder, someone's probably not going to open that email right? because they already know what it is. And so your engagement for all of those reminder emails for most subscribers is probably going to be like nothing, which ultimately is hurting your deliverability or it could hurt your deliverability over time. So anyways, that was kind of a long way to get to what I was trying to say. But I just think it's a really important thing to think about because I hadn't really thought about that before. Yes. And now that you're saying this, I totally remember what you're talking about. Someone brought this up and I had the same moment of like, oh my gosh, that's so true. Where even if that webinar reminder email is super helpful to someone and they needed it, they didn't need to click on the email to get that info. If you say reminder webinar starts in one hour, they can just scroll through their inbox and see the subject line and think, oh yeah, I'm going to be there without having to even open it, which will likely you know, tank your open rates and potentially deliverability. So I love that. I think that's such a good reminder and not sending too many emails. Like you said, it can, yeah, it can definitely overwhelm your subscribers. Cool. So next mistake is not proofreading before sending. I know this can be a struggle when you're super busy, but it can lead to a lot of, you know, mistakes and then a terrible feeling once you've sent it all out and you start to get replies that there's a mistake or you see yourself that there's a mistake. Mm-hmm. So definitely recommend always sending yourself a preview email. If you have someone on your team who can kind of be like your second pair of eyes or third, if you have someone else, send them a preview email as well and ask them to click all the links, really read through it, see if there are any typos or anything like that. If you are a ConvertKit Pro customer, you do have the ability to edit links after an email was already sent. So that is a great feature that we've seen save a lot of people. We do check every link for you, even if you're not a Creator Pro customer, and it will tell you if it's going to 404 before the email sent. But sometimes, you know, links just go bad afterwards, or you just totally put in the wrong link, even though it was it works. Um, you know, you copy and pasted the wrong one or something like that. So 
that's a great feature if you need it and uh, you want that peace of mind. And normally emails are going out so quickly that if you were to reach out to customer support, I've seen this happen a lot and people ask if we can go ahead and just like stop the, you know, like a broadcast from going out. And that's just, especially like with a, you know, normal size list, um, it's just not possible because it's going out so quickly. So there's not always something someone can do to help in that scenario. And yeah, if you're not a pro plan customer and can't change it, then there's, there's just not a whole lot we can do on our end usually. So that's just something to keep in mind too. Okay, number six, setting up DMARC without understanding how it works. I would say this, <laughs> I probably get this question like wow. once a day. Yeah, it's so common and it's really easy. It's the, probably, I don't know, the easiest email like deliverability thing you can fix instantly. But without getting like too technical, if you set up a DMARC record on your domain, there are three levels of DMARC. And the second two basically will either reject your message or it will send your message to spam because it's like quarantining your message. And so if you have that set up and you, with ConvertKit specifically, don't set up a verified sending domain with us in your account, your message will not be delivered properly and you you will not be like authenticating your messages properly either. So again, without getting too technical, just make sure like your DMARC record is controlled within your hosts, like your domain host settings, not within ConvertKit, which is also kind of something I think people get confused about. So if you're worried that you have a DMARC record, go check in your domain host settings. And then if you would like to keep your DMARC record and you need help figuring out if your messages are authenticating correctly, you can always reach out to the deliverability team at ConvertKit and we will help you. Yes, such a good one. If you need more information on what in the world we just said, (laughs) feel free to um, go listen to our authentication episode in season one. But yeah, I think, Melissa, you are so good at explaining the levels and how it works and... um, Yeah, that was really helpful. Let's talk about number seven, which is never cleaning your list. This is a very, very, very common mistake that we see where um, usually the senders in this case, you know, they're collecting their list in a great way. Everyone signed up to be there. People are signing up usually through their forms on their websites, things like that. So they don't know that they need to be um, pretty regularly going through their list and removing people who are unengaged in order to not hurt their reputation and deliverability. So if you don't do that, um, essentially people will naturally, some subscribers will just naturally become unengaged. Uh, Maybe the content doesn't make sense for them anymore. Maybe they got a new email address and this one is just sitting there collecting messages. It's hard to always, you know, to know why, but if you don't remove them, it is a really negative sign to mailbox providers that you continue to email people who are just not engaging with your messages. And usually that will start to cause your open rates to drop. And it can be a really frustrating and confusing thing as a sender when you feel like you're doing everything right. And then suddenly out of nowhere, your emails or your open rates start to drop. So make sure you are going through your list. I would say at least every um, three months, looking through your cold subscribers, and re-engaging them. Then eventually after, you know, someone does not become re-engaged after you've tried once or twice, go ahead and remove them from your list. It's a slippery slope and a lot of issues can come from not cleaning your list. 
Another one that we've actually, Alyssa and I have had to have a recent conversation about are spam traps. There's in our, I don't, is it in, I think it's a whole episode on spam traps actually. Yeah. We have a whole episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it feels like that was so long ago. So I forget, but yeah, I, if you're interested in learning more about spam traps, go listen to that episode in season one, but you know, emails eventually can become deactivated at some point. You know, not everyone has their email for years and years and years and you know, eventually, like if you don't clean your list and emails keep signing up and then they're unengaged and then maybe they're, the email is now deactivated, you can experience higher bounces, you could experience spam, spam trap issues. And it's just like a whole laundry list of things. So at the end of the day too, like people who aren't opening your emails for, you know, six months are also probably not going to start and will ultimately not be a sale if you are looking to, you know, market to them and eventually have them buy something from you. So they're just not worth holding on to. Yep. Such a good point. They're just going to cause more harm than good. So it's good to know when to say goodbye. Unfortunately, um, equality is much more important than quantity. Agreed. Okay. Number eight, bouncing around from ESP to ESP. So this one is kind of interesting because I don't think it's something people think about probably the way that Alyssa and I think about it. I see this all the time. Someone will be like, I just moved to ConvertKit and my open rates are low. But when I send from XESP, you know, whatever that is that they're sending from, my open rates are better. And so they'll be sending from ConvertKit and from another ESP at the same time because they're trying to figure out like the deliverability from each platform, which in theory, like I, I kind of understand where that logic would come from, but it's super not great for your deliverability because you have a sending address that's sending from two different IPs that belong to two different platforms. So don't do that. And if you are trying to figure out your deliverability, this is a whole, again, a whole topic we could talk about forever, but deliverability is not made up of one thing coming from one ESP to another. It's your sender reputation is really what is causing your emails to be placed in certain places. So yeah, don't send from two ESPs. And when you bounce around from one to another, email box providers can't figure out who you are and you don't have a history with them uh, and they don't trust you. Yes, I love that. I might've used this analogy a couple weeks ago, but I'm gonna do it again because it helps to hear things repeated. So I like to say it's sort of like, you know when Amazon will come up to your house and deliver something to you and they're in an Amazon marked truck or something. So you're like, someone's coming up to my door. I know who it is. I see the Amazon thing on their car and that's what they always do. I know what to expect. That's sort of like your mail that you've been sending from your ESP for you know a while. And then as soon as you switch to a new ESP and maybe you are just trying it out like Melissa was talking about, it's sort of like when Amazon shows up to your house and they're just in like a normal car and there's no marking. I know that happens sometimes here. And you're like, who is this person just approaching my door with absolutely no, you know, marking of anything, you know, on their clothes or on their car. And it makes you a little more suspicious. So maybe if that person were to knock on your door, you wouldn't answer it um, because you're like, who is this person? That's sort of what's happening whenever you start sending from a new ESP. Mailbox providers like Gmail and Microsoft are like, okay, you know, I've 
kind of seen something like this before. They have an Amazon package in their hand. I've seen that email, but it normally comes from another place or another sender. So they're just a little more suspicious. And especially if you're still sending mail from that other ESP too, it might be sending some mixed signals. So it is a good idea to find the ESP that works best for you and know what you're looking for and try not to hop around too much. Of course, it's normal to you know hop around a little bit and we definitely see people hop over to ConvertKit every day and we're very happy about that, obviously, and we wanna be the best fit. I saw a sender the other day that had used five ESPs in the last year. Some people I think are just kind of always looking for the next best thing and the next best reporting and the next best sequencing and all these things. And that does have a potential to really mess up your reputation and put a big question mark on your sending domain. So I would say use like more than two ESPs in a year if you can help it. Try and really know what you value, what you need in an ESP and stick it out a little bit. Yeah. And if you're interested in just like, you know, seeing what an ESP has, maybe use a different email address that you can, you know, it's totally understandable if you want to sign up for a trial and go play around with the features and figure out what works for you. But maybe don't like import your entire list and use your sending email that you're using in another ESP. Yes. I think that's the key is someone will just send to their entire list in a new place. And it's like, uh, let's take it slow. So um, start by sending to your most engaged subscribers first at that ESP or testing. Don't just, you know, barge through the front door with your full list. <laughs> okay. The next mistake that we're going to talk about is sending too much content or really image heavy content that will cause your email to be clipped. I do have an example for this. I know I've mentioned it to you, Melissa. I don't know if it was on the podcast or not, but one sender that I'm subscribed to is Gucci because, you know, a girl can dream about buying a Gucci bag Mm -hmm. all the time. So very aspirational (laughs) list to be on. And I am sure Gucci has a very well-staffed, I would assume, email marketing team. Their emails are absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Love looking at them. However, every time I do and I, you know, get to the bottom of the email, all of the messages are clipped in Gmail, which means that my open that I just did with the email was not calculated, was not sent back to the Gucci team. Um, And that's probably happening for, I would say, a large portion of their audience. So their marketing team is probably thinking, man, our open rates are terrible. What's going on? When in reality, their open rates are much, much, much higher. They are just clipping the open tracking pixel. So whenever your message is too large, especially with Gmail, they are going to clip your message and any open tracking pixel will not be calculated or loaded, making your opens look much, much lower than they are and probably causing some panic. So be sure to not have a super, super image heavy email You'll want to keep it under 100 kilobytes and always send yourself a test. If you don't have your own Gmail address, just make one. Just make a test Gmail address. Use it to send yourself tests and see if the message is clipped or not. Yeah. Sometimes I'll like reach out to Alyssa and be like, I can't figure out what's going on in this customer's account. Like their open rates are super low and every once in a while it'll be a clipped message one that'll totally get by me. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't see that. So yeah, sometimes it's it would be super helpful. Like you'd probably catch it on your own if you did send yourself tests. So that's a great point. Yeah. And that's another fun one. Cause it's like that, I mean, is a pretty easy fix. It's not something crazy where we're like, right. Your entire audience doesn't want to hear from you. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh yeah, <laughs> just make it a little shorter or just take out that huge image and then you're good. Exactly. Yeah. Number 10, last one, 
not using a double opt-in. This one, again, I feel like if you've listened to all of our episodes and you are learning about deliverability maybe, and you don't you know, feel like you know everything, not that anyone does, but you'll realize that so many of these aspects like domino into mm-hmm. each other. And if you're doing one thing, then it ultimately leads to like this other issue. So not using a double opt-in, you can have all sorts of problems. And I also, I want to like be careful how I say this too, because I have recommended to some people to not use a double opt-in and those are for very specific Mm -hmm. scenarios. So I wouldn't say that it's like the be all end all necessarily, but if you aren't monitoring your list super well, you will have a lot of issues down the road. So if you're not using a double opt-in, anyone can sign up to your list and be automatically confirmed. And sometimes those addresses are not real. Sometimes they're bots. Sometimes yet like people who don't want to hear from you and they're being signed up by a bot. You can ultimately have a really large list of cold subscribers down the road. You can have like a higher complaint rate. There are all kinds of issues that can come from not using a double opt-in. Alyssa, what other things can you think of that can cause issues? Yeah. Sorry, my dog is wanting to join. (laughs) He loves double opt-in. Okay. He's so cute. Yeah, I would say if you're one of those people, we know you're out there, it's okay, um, who is really off-put by the idea of having a double opt-in. Some people absolutely hate it because they want every single person on their list, and I get that. Just make sure that if you are in that boat and you're not going to use double opt-in, that you keep a very close eye on your list. The hard part is a lot of times um, addresses that are added to your list by a bot, for example, you can't tell because they add real email addresses. We do have a whole episode on list bombing in season one. So go listen to that if you're not quite sure what we're talking about. But I would say try and keep a really close eye on your list and a really close eye on your complaints. And if you start to see that subscribers are complaining about the very first email they receive, that's a big red flag and you need to have double opt-in because it means what you're seeing is, okay, well, someone signed up for my emails, got one email and complained and said, you know, marked it as spam. That's not normal behavior at all and is a very good sign that either you have list bombing going on or there's some other form of a really low value subscribe happening. I've seen some people will get these if, for example, when you visit your website, a huge pop-up comes up and it's like, enter your email address for this ebook and maybe the X sign is like really hard to find. No one can find it and they just want that to go away. So they type in like, you know, bob at so-and-so.com. Well, someone might actually have that email address and then that person just received an email they didn't sign up for so that it got marked as spam. So anyways, that's just a sign that something is not right and that you need that double opt-in because for everyone who is actively marking a message as spam, there are a bunch of other people who are just kind of like ignoring it and never opening it. And if you didn't have a double opt-in, those people will just sit on your list and you'll keep emailing them forever and ever, and they're never going to open. And it's going to cause a lot of negative signals and you'll have a a dirty, not clean list. But if you were to have double opt-in, those people who are just going to ignore the emails that they didn't sign up for won't make it onto your list because they won't confirm that first opt-in email. Exactly. Nice. There you have it. 10, (laughs) 10 email mistakes. Yes, we made it through 10. There was one example I was going to give, and I didn't mention it at the time, but I think it's kind of funny. I honestly didn't know it was that funny until I tweeted it, and people loved it. So I have to um, talk about it here because you all are podcast listeners. 
but I ordered a new webcam, which we are using like some video elements to this podcast. Now we're uploading some YouTube videos and putting some on social media. So I'm trying to have a better video game. And I ordered a webcam from Logitech and I almost immediately after ordering got an email and it just appeared in my Gmail and it said the sender was do not dot, dot, dot at buy dot logitech.com. So just looking at it, it looks like it says do not buy Logitech, <laughs> but it was an order confirmation email from them saying, here's your order confirmation. So what happened is they sent an email from do not reply at buy.logitech.com. That's probably the subdomain they're using for anyone who's purchased. But it was hilarious because the way it showed up in Gmail was do not buy Logitech. And I had just purchased from them. I actually got another one this morning and it was like saying that it had shipped, but it said, do not buy Logitech. So I tweeted the screenshot of that. And it actually, for some reason, people were like, LOL, this is hilarious. So that, uh, just to tack on to one of our first examples, I would highly recommend not sending from a do not reply at email address. It's just not a good look. For one, that could happen that we just talked about. But for two, email was meant to be a back and forth, like, conversation if it can be. Yeah, like people can reply. So telling them like, I'm sending you an email and you cannot reply to it is just a poor practice. So if you're concerned like that the replies won't be monitored, then just make sure you are you have a reply to address that will be monitored. Just, yeah, set up the infrastructure for that if um, you need to, because do not reply is just not a great practice. That's so funny. Yeah. Sorry for the bonus example, but... <laughs> No, that's a really, I mean, I feel like there's so many that I see daily and I'll have to keep better track. So maybe we can have another, another episode with more mistakes later because there are so many. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, honestly, I think sending yourself a test email is like one of the best ways to just make sure you're not getting something that's weird. And I don't know, you know, how many senders do that or if they only do it for certain emails, but just sending yourself one you know, to an address that's, uh, that's another thing too. Like if you're going to send yourself a test address, try to not use the domain you're sending from mm. to also receive that same message. Yes. So let's say it's like melissa at gmail.com or melissa at melissa.com. Let's say that. Okay. And I send myself tests, like a test preview to melissa at melissa.com. That's not always a great way to monitor your deliverability because a lot of times your email box provider will think you're being spoofed. And sometimes that message won't even land in your your inbox. And then people get really panicked and they think that something's wrong when really it's just because you're sending and receiving to and from the same message. So if you're going to send a test preview, that's a little extra tip. Do not use your sending address to also receive the test message. Yes, that's such a good one. Essentially what's happening in that case, just for those who are curious, it's like if you were to open up your mailbox and you received an email that said it was from you, it'd be like, whoa, I didn't send this. That's what's happening with your own like mailbox provider, like your Melissa at Melissa.com address. It saw a message come in that was sent from like ConvertKit's IP address, but it said it came from you. And they're like, well, I am Melissa at Melissa.com. Mm -hmm. I didn't send this. And so it looks suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a really great one. I know we see that one come up a lot. Make sure you test from some other address. Yeah. So yeah, there we go. There we have it. Okay. 
That's great. I don't know why at the end of these podcasts, I just like never want to stop. I just want to keep talking and hang out with you. And I know we can talk about it all day. <laughs> I know. Let's see what we're talking about next week. Ooh, email marketing for musicians. Ooh, fun. And even if you're not a musician, we will definitely have information that will be helpful to you. Absolutely. I just heard, I was talking to someone and my my dad works in the music industry and they were talking recently about some concerts that might be happening as soon as April, which is pretty exciting. So hopefully people are starting to figure out safe ways to have things happen again, which makes me just really optimistic and happy. Yes. I, my husband, Thomas, actually worked a concert last night. I forgot to tell you that. But at the Ryman Auditorium here in Nashville, it's like the best venue, my number one favorite venue. I didn't go just, you know, because they had limited capacity, but um, got to yeah. see the pictures and it was amazing. I think they had like barely anyone there in person, but everyone was super spread out right. and then they did a live stream. But I know it was very emotional for him to be back in a venue with an audience and seeing some live music. So we're getting there. <laughs> super exciting. Well, then this podcast episode will come at a great time then. Yeah, I think so too. Well, happy Friday, Melissa. Happy, I think this will come out on a Tuesday for everyone else. I think Monday is March 1st, so that's exciting too. Yeah, our Monday. Listeners, you're already way in the future. I hope it's doing okay there in the future. You're in the future. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's okay. All righty. All right. Well, we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Deliverability Defined. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening. And if you have time, please leave us a review. You can find a resource guide for today's show at convertkit.com slash deliverability, where we outline all of the information you need to know from today's episode. If you have a question or topic you want us to cover, let us know within the ConvertKit community or at convertkit.com slash deliverability. We'll see you next week.